Gentlemen, welcome to this tenth episode of the first stage of Surreal Politics. It is uh, it is good to be with all of you today, and uh, almost everything is working today. I right before airtime, I discovered some what appears to be some trouble with Twitter Spaces. Let me okay. make sure. Uh, yes, I seem to have audio on D Live. I seem to have audio on um, um, on Odyssey and. One of these days, I guess uh, I guess the stream on Rumble will start playing, I'm pretty sure. It's going to play my stupid placeholder video, and then it's going to go ahead, and it's going to do this at some point. And we, but we appear, to be, uh, we appear to be live on everything else. And so, good to be with all of you today. And let me go ahead and pull up my, uh, pull up my script here. Um, here at Surreal Politics, you might have heard, you know, when speaking of power, there's a well-reasoned tendency to speak of matters pertaining to electoral victory. This is on account of the fact that the state is the ultimate arbiter of disputes and its capacity to use force without repercussion renders state power the supreme means of imposing one's will upon a society. But we have been careful to note from time to time that much happens before Election Day. The inner workings of the party have featured prominently in our prior discussions as one example. Of course, as Andrew Breitbart famously noted, politics is downstream from culture. Culture being a massy, many facet, uh, culture is a many-faceted thing. Um, but at the center of culture's impact on politics are the stories that we tell ourselves. And since few of us are the creators of these stories, they are in large part the stories we are told by others. These stories might be true or false, and while their veracity is by no means irrelevant, it is rather besides the point as to whether or not they impact our politics. If people believe it, this will be reflected in culture, and it will transmit to politics and ultimately to state imposition. It might go without saying that the left has enjoyed near total dominance in this arena for as long as many of us have been alive, and near certainly for as long as any of us have been paying attention to politics. There are a lot of reasons for this, not the least of them ethnic in origin, and those are best discussed elsewhere. Today, I wish to discuss reclaiming the narratives of our politics. If you get to decide what people believe, then the outcomes of the election is rather besides the point. The narrative shapes the conversation, and the conversation dictates the terms of the debate. If people are left to decide once in a term of years between two candidates who are equally immersed in your narrative, then the outcome of the contest is rather besides the point. You won long before the primary was even contemplated. I have a couple of prominent examples of this to discuss. One was a story that brought great joy for me to discover. I had years ago written a story about an abortionist who bragged graphically about the horrors she carries out on a daily basis. Someone asked her on Twitter if she hears the screams of the children that she murders, to which she responded, quote, You know, fetuses can't scream, right? I transect the cord first, so there's really no opportunity if they're even far enough along to have a larynx. I won't apologize for performing medicine. I'm also a uterus ripper-outer, if that's how you'd like to describe a hysterectomy. I just found that while I was without internet access, um, she had uh, her medical license suspended pending an investigation. She was allowed to return to practice, but in the wake of the row reversal, her Alabama practice is in jeopardy, and she now claims to live in fear. The Guardian wrote up a 4,100-plus word piece, making her out to be a hero under assault. I won't trouble you to read the entire thing on air, but I'm going to provide some choice excerpts and discuss the implications. The story is titled, we get it right from the title. The title is, She Was One of Abor Alabama's Last Abortion Doctors. Then they came for everything she had. Oh, well, that tells us the angle right from the beginning, doesn't it? She is an abortion doctor, okay? Doctor is a title of authority, you might know, which stands in contrast to what 
is called in conservative media an abortionist, a term leftists hate like nails on a chalkboard because it conveys a tone of illicit behavior. The term abortion doctor informs us that abortions are something doctors do, which is by definition totally legal and appropriate and righteous. To prevent a doctor from performing their work is to obstruct access to health care, which is something that even in, that is even prohibited in warfare. Only a very special sort of villain does this kind of thing. Uh, do I want to... Oh, yeah, it's already doing it. Okay, good. The subheading reads, Dr. Leah Torres has endured the ire of the anti-abortion movement without backing down, but now she faces her most daunting challenge. And here we are made to know just who our special villain is. It's the anti-abortion movement. Not to be confused with the pro-life movement. That is way too flattering of a term. These people are killers. They don't care about life. Only the good doctor cares about life. Our hero has endured their terror for eternity and always has risen to the task, but now a new danger lurks, and it is of an even more sinister nature. The story, written by Papi Noor, reads as follows. Dr. Leah Torres doesn't tell people what she does when she meets them, which makes it hard to make friends. She removes her name from every piece of trash before she puts it out for recycling in case people walking past see her name and find out where she lives. If a package addressed to her arrives on her porch, she calls everyone she knows to identify who sent it before she opens it, because it could be a bomb. Oh. Do note that there's no evidence that anyone has ever tried to blow Miss Torres up, and the informed reader doubts Miss Torres actually goes through all of this trouble. To begin, Miss Torres is hardly anonymous. Recall that the whole reason we are having this discussion is because she has intentionally drawn as much attention to herself as possible on Twitter, she uses the most offensive language she can find to advocate for her behavior with the conscious and premeditated intent of drawing the ire of our villain, the anti-abortion movement. She does this and then she is upset and then she is afraid to throw away garbage on the off chance that some anti-abortion zealot might be going through the garbage cans on her street and discover, aha, she's the one who said mean things on Twitter. Now I know where to send the bomb. And how often do you, dear listener, receive a package on your porch with no concept of how it might have arrived? How often do you think that occurs in the life of Miss Torres? Does Miss Torres forget about the Amazon orders she places after too much wine and then go through her Rolodex furiously spinning away at her rotary phone, calling everyone she knows, trying to determine if they've dropped off a case of phone books? Do you think that's happening? The story is preposterous from the first sentence, and any actual journalist would probe at such obvious fraud but that is not what The Guardian has set out here to do. What is being done here is to set the tone of this lengthy article. We are clearly discussing the protagonist of the story. Danger lurks ubiquitously for our hero, which causes her to live in secret. That a fugitive or a mob boss might live similarly is of no consequence here, because we know from the title that our protagonist is a good doctor who has been standing up to these villains. In the very next paragraph, we are informed of the true nature of the threat Ms. Torres actually lives under. Quote, Once coming back from work in the piercing August Alabama sun, so it's daytime, mind you, she noticed a gray sedan parked in her driveway. Instinctively, she fled to a neighbor's house. She barely knew him, her neighbor, but asked if he could walk her home anyway. The car turned out to be a stranger's. The driver had just pulled over to send a text message. Quote, Still, you never know, says Torres, her big almond eyes conveying concern.
So when Miss Torres tries to conjure for her interlocutor a story in which she was in actual danger, this is the best that she could do. She told the reporter that one single time a stranger parked near her home, so she went to another stranger's house, apparently unafraid of that prospect. And in the end, it was a non-issue, which makes the next paragraph begin quite comically. Quote, she's not paranoid. <laughs> really? Oh, is that the case? Torres is an abortion doctor in the state of Alabama where abortion is now illegal except in life-threatening situations. She is one of many doctors increasingly targeted by lawmakers, protesters, conservative news outlets, and social media. Even more so now that abortion is no longer legal in much of the United States. Well, as a matter of fact, she, she actually is paranoid. Some guy stopped near her home to avoid texting and driving, and she panicked for no reason. There is not any evidence that she has ever been in any actual danger at all. But if we are to believe her story, and I'm not saying that we should. Excuse me just a second. <laughs> I can't believe this. Anyway. Uh, this is pretty funny. Okay. So, anyway, don't try to help me troubleshoot my audio in the middle of the broadcast. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it, though. So, as I was saying, <laughs> um, well, she is, in fact, paranoid. Some guy drops up near her home to avoid texting and driving, and she panicked. There is not any evidence that she has ever been in any danger at all, but if we are to believe her story, and I'm not saying that we should, then Miss pa- Torres is certainly a paranoiac. But in this paragraph, it is revealed what Ms. Torres is actually concerned about. Her activity is now illegal. She may have been afraid of the gray sedan, but not because it may have been transporting a suicide bomber. She more likely feared arrest. Ms. Torres does not live like a fugitive because criminals are targeting her. She is living like a fugitive because she has been committing crimes, and the law now recognizes those crimes as such in Alabama. Ms. Torres and her interlocutor at The Guardian view these laws as illegitimate. They are describing this woman who has spent her career doing what is now illegal in Alabama as a victim of state repression. Of course, any regular reader of The Guardian might note that they take a rather different tone with law-abiding people who, for example, legally speak about subject matter they think should be outlawed. They are not noble crusaders for freedom of speech, but criminals who have found a loophole called the Constitution through which they continue their criminal behavior unhindered by the law. The heroes of those stories are the tech companies and financial institutions who rush in to do what the state has failed. For, these, for all these complaints about the criminal element, it is the state, which in nearly all other cases is beloved by the Guardian and Ms. Torres, which make the good doctor now live in fear. Quote, Torres has been long in the public eye. As a proud, loud abortion provider who is well known on social media, she has made many enemies. But since the state of Alabama took her medical license away, dragging her through a $115,000 legal battle that put her out of work for seven months, fear follows her around like a stranger ready to snatch her in the night. Very artistically put, Guardian. Poppy Noor. It was 11 a.m. on a Thursday when two men presented themselves in the lounge of the West Alabama Women's Center asking to see the clinic's doctor. Torres led the two men down the hall to one of the offices. Inside, the air was stuffy, the windows carpeted by heavy 1940s drapes that deny all sun, a helpful privacy feature. The men revealed themselves to be investigators sent by the state. One solemnly informed Miss Torres of her predicament. She was being stripped of her license to practice medicine pending an investigation by the Alabama Board of Medical Examiners. 
Torres was being accused of fraud. Scott Sides, one of the investigators, informed her that she had made errors in her application for a medical license. The hearing was set for 21 December 2020, four months in the future, when she would be able to argue her case. Until then, she couldn't practice as a doctor. Conspicuously absent from the story so far is the result of the case against Ms. Torres. The Guardian apparently thinks it not worthy of note whether or not Ms. Torres committed fraud. She was accused of fraud, and we are informed by the tone that the government agents who served her with the notices are villains. She is a doctor today, and the reader is to infer from this that the accusation is false. This is glossed over 3,121 words into our 4,100-word story much later and does nothing to inform the reader even at this late stage. But the accusations were not false, and Ms. Torres habitually lies in public and in private about her life as we informed by the fine folks over at Live Action. To begin, The Guardian has conspicuously been silent about the fact that the, about the part... Uh, <clears throat> The fact that part of the clinic's problems stem from their being held liable for the death of a 29-year-old patient named April Lowry in May of 2020. This happened a mere three months before investigators discovered that Ms. Torres had lied on her medical license application. So when the clinic that you work at is found liable for the death of a patient, it is not a witch hunt that they come in and they begin inspecting the credentials of the people who work there. But, of course, The Guardian is not here to inform their readers. This is narrative construction. They are painting a picture. It is a work of art. It has nothing to do with reality. Her license, as it turns out, was a temporary one, and it was revoked mere days after she began her practice at the clinic held liable for the death. Quoting from Live Action, Torres began working in early August 2020, only to learn on August 26th that her temporary license had been revoked and that she'd been ordered by the Alabama Board of Medical Examiners to, quote, immediately cease and desist from the practice of medicine in the state of Alabama. The cease and desist letter read, quote, The board presently has evidence in its possession that the continuance and practice of Leah N. Torres, M.D. may constitute an immediate danger to her patients and or the public. The letter cited multiple instances of suspected fraud in Torres's application for licensure, including responding no to a question whether her staff privileges at a hospital had ever been previously revoked or otherwise altered when, in fact, quote, her staff privileges at a hospital or healthcare facility had been revoked, suspended, curtailed, limited, or placed under conditions restricting her practice, end quote. The letter also listed that Torres answered no to a question of whether she had ever faced a medical malpractice allegation. In fact, Quote, a medical malpractice action relating to her performance of professional service was settled on or about August 28, 2018. The letter further suggested Torres committed fraud by answering no to a question about a past psychological or behavioral issues impacting her practice of medicine when, in fact, quote, on or about March 13, 2019, Torres, through counsel, raised the issue of a mental, emotional, nervous, or behavioral disorder or condition as a defense, mitigation, or explanation for your actions in the course of a judicial proceeding in the United States District Court for the District of Utah, end quote. The letter went on to contend that Torres provided, quote, false, misleading, or untruthful information regarding dates of employment, claiming that she was employed during a certain period of time when she was not. The board further noted that she had been found to, quote, have uh, violated the high standards of honesty, diligence, prudence, and ethical integrity demanded from physicians licensed to practice in Alabama. A hearing was set for December of 2020. In the meantime, Dr. Torres continued to work at the facility in a non-medical role listed on the facility's website as clinical services administrator. 
According to a statement by the chairman of the Medical Licensure Commission of Alabama, the hearing on December 21, 2020 additionally addressed a statement of Torres' application that she intended to work with COVID-19 patients, though in fact she was being hired to commit abortions at an abortion facility. The chairman's statement regarding the, the hearing summarized that, quote, there were elements in some of Dr. Torres' answers in her application which were suggestive of deceptive answers and a lack of ethical integrity expected of practicing physicians in Alabama. Thus, the commission directs that Torres must attend an ethics course. Torres additionally had to pay an administrative fine of $4,000. In January, Torres completed the ethics class, and in March, her Alabama medical license was approved. A recent update to a local CBS affiliate suggests that Torres is still deceiving the public. While Torres claimed to have received a letter from the ASBME informing her that the actions against her, quote, should never have been taken, and the GoFundMe she used to raise funds for her legal fees reads similarly. A statement for the ASBME's general counsel contradicts these claims, quote, Dr. Torres's statement that she received a letter from the board stating that this action should never have been taken is indicative of the deceptive answers the board charged her with providing in her license application, wrote the ASBME. No correspondence of this nature had ever been sent to her by the board. We suspect that Dr. Torres is referring to a computer-generated letter sent to her by the National Practitioner Database. That's the end of the uh, block quote from Live Action. The idea that The Guardian did not understand this when they interviewed Ms. Torres need not be considered. They mentioned the accusation. They framed it as a conspiracy against half the planet's population. Then they just moved on without explaining further. This is very careful narrative construction. They understood clearly that explaining what happened would not have portrayed the protagonist in a positive light. So they just skipped that part and moved on to something they could frame as a very benevolent Miss Torres. We are subsequently informed about the patients, uh, the, uh, the abortion clinic's patients that, quote, Historically, most of the clinic's patients have been black and low income. Many were mothers unable to take on the financial burden of a new baby. Parenthetically, most people who have an abortion or already, already have children. Less often, they were teenagers who didn't want to drastically change their life course to become a parent. And of course, to the Guardian reader, it goes without saying that black people are the good guys in any story. You, as a Guardian reader, have already heard that most abortions are performed on mothers. But you are reminded anyway because we must make sure to invoke motherhood here to provide sympathy for those who procure the now illicit services of Miss Torres. If you harbor some racist ideas, you are at least happy to know that fewer blacks are being born. And among them, the white liberal set, there are surely a few of those in the Guardian's target audience. So whether Miss Torres is keeping the pests from breeding or providing a valuable service to the downtrodden, there is something in this article for everybody. Ms. Torres, we are informed, started off not as an abortion doctor, but as an escort. She would help make certain that no child came into this world just because its mother couldn't get it a ride to the abortion clinic. She did this for years, and she described it as something she enjoyed. Immediately after informing us that Ms. Torres was a helpful escort of the downtrodden patients, we are again reminded of the criminal evil acts of the anti-abortion movement. Quote, Alongside the conviviality between escorts and patients, though, was the harassment. Four years after it opened in 1997, the clinic was the subject to an arson attack that was raised to the ground, reopening in the same nondescript business park. And, you know, I'm just going to add here, there's obviously no possibility that this was an insurance fraud. It had to be the bad guys. You know, they don't investigate this. 
The clinic had been threatened countless times, even shot at. In 2006, an anti-abortion advocate drove his Nissan Sentra through the building's front doors and into the waiting room in the early hours of the morning before patients arrived. The culprit said he didn't want to harm anyone, although he probably wanted to put the clinic out of operation. And the placement of this reminder is no accident. The next paragraph tells us about the real subject here. Then came the onslaught of anti-abortion legislation in Alabama in the late 2000s, which almost shuttered the center. A law requiring hospital permitting privileges for abortion clinics closed the facility for the best part of 2018. There were laws that regulated the use of medication abortion in the clinic and laws that required a $150,000 ambulance ramp to be fitted to the back of the building. Hospitalization is a very rare occurrence, they had parenthetically, still glossing over the fact that they were held liable for the wrongful death of a patient just months before her license was suspended. It was a slow, protracted attack by thousands of laws, regulations, and expensive emergency fittings Owner Gloria Gray would often mentally set a date at which she'd have to close the clinic for good, she explained in a 2016 documentary produced by the New York Times. But when that date arrived, she said, quote, My heart just wouldn't let me do it. So you might be able to see what they're doing here. The crime sets the tone. There's a criminal act. There's, these things are ancient history. The, 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 and it's, and then they slide in the lawful acts of the elected officials. They are the same thing, after all. The 30-year-old gunshot, the, shot, the car wreck, the, the fire that is totally unexplained and certainly not insurance fraud. All of these things are ancient history. But in the construction of the narrative here, it is important that they be fresh in your mind, placed as a mental conduit between the caring Miss Torres and the wicked state which obstructs her benevolent efforts to care for those infected with the dreaded disease called pregnancy. Miss Gray, the owner of the clinic, oppressed though she is by the malicious rulers of the land, could not close her clinic, quote, because my heart wouldn't let me do it. You see, abortion is the greatest of all God's gifts, and the idea that Miss Gray would allow the laws of man to interfere with God's greatest work is preposterous to her. In 2018, Miss Gray was ready to leave the abortion business, but not before she found somebody to purchase her asset. The Guardian informs us that this was very difficult, you see, because abortion is not a lucrative business, thereby informing us that this is not about money for Miss Gray, who is a saint and totally above any thought of financial issues. Interestingly, it was when Alabama banned abortion entirely that Miss Gray found a buyer. The bill resulted in a $2 million donation, or in $2 million worth of donations to the Yellowhammer Fund a prominent local abortion fund in Alabama that went on to take the clinic off Gray's hands. Now that we have our protagonist, Ms. Torres, and our villain, the state of Alabama, let us um, divert the timeline into some character development in Ms. Torres's uh, origin story. Two events define the life, the lives of Torres's parents, so far as Torres sees it. Her dad, a first-generation American from a Mexican family, who grew up in 1940s Michigan, was so tormented by bullies that by the time he was five, he had to force himself to forget how to speak Spanish. Torres, who is adopted, studied languages during her undergraduate studies. She is now a fluent Spanish speaker, but her dad cannot converse with her in his native tongue. Which, you know, his native tongue was Spanish when he grew up in 1940s in Michigan. When Torres was about eight or nine years old, her mom, a chief nursing officer in a Michigan hospital, fought a sexual harassment case at work. 
Torres was too young to understand what happened, just that it involved male colleagues using inappropriate language of a sexual nature around her mother, and that after her mom raised the issue, she lost her job. Torres's mother sued the company and had to relocate for work. Torres took one lesson from these stories as they gloss over the conclusion of the lawsuit and don't mention that it probably went nowhere. That the point, at some point in her life, she would face discrimination and you always had to fight for what is right. And right on cue, ladies and gentlemen, you see it happening. The two-headed monster of white supremacy, racism, and sexism at the heart of this conspiracy against those Miss Torres cures of their pregnancies. Miss Torres was born into this struggle, you see, and so although her profession may be a crime today, it is only to her revolutionary credentials that she persists in her craft against the law. More than 2,300 words into our 4,100-word uh, essay, the reader is just now informed of what made Miss Torres famous. By the time Miss Torres was in her 30s, the uh, fight she had long been anticipating finally found her. Now remember, the fight is discrimination, okay? She's uh, been raised to believe that she's going to face race and sex discrimination, and she's gone through her entire life into her 30s without facing this problem. And it's in her 30s that she finally comes into contact with the fight that she's been anticipating since her mother frivolously sued a hospital and left in embarrassment. On the way to a conference in Australia, someone sent her an agonizing tweet asking if she heard the screams of the fetuses she aborts. She hastily fired off a response, quote, You know, fetuses can't scream, right? I transect the cord first, so there's really no opportunity if they're even far enough along to have a larynx. I won't apologize for performing medicine. I'm also a uterus ripper-outer, if that's how you'd like to describe a hysterectomy, she wrote. By the time she'd landed, it had gone viral. Former Breitbart editor Ben Shapiro shared the tweet comparing Torres to a James Bond villain. Conservative news outlets like the Daily Caller covered it, misinterpreting it to read that Miss Torres cut vocal cords, which is not part of any standard abortion procedure. But, you know, who cares about standards? These are, you know, bundles of cells that we're just mutilating for kicks because that's our idea of a good time in the Democrat Party, ain't it? When she meant the umbilical cord. People started pulling out of the Australian conference at which Torres was scheduled to speak. Oh, there we go. You know, cancel culture strikes again, ladies and gentlemen. Surely now, Mr. Conservative, you must sympathize with our protagonist, don't you? Quoting again from The Guardian. After her viral moment, Torres deleted the tweet. The next week, she was on a flight back to Utah. A few days later, after having been directed not to come back into work, she was called into a meeting with a generic-looking conference room she'd never been into before on the edge of town. An HR person she didn't know handed her a mutual separation agreement and told her, sign it and you'll get three months severance, or don't and leave without pay. She was later chaperoned into her old office to collect her belongings, a mortifying moment in which not a single colleague would look her in the eye. It felt like I was a criminal, like I had laundered money or something, she recalls. Torres would later sue the Daily Caller for defamation, alleging that it had misinterpreted her tweet. The article written about her and many since indeed claimed she was referring to vocal cords, which are plural and not what Ms. Torres says she was referencing. She was awarded $40,000 in damages and the outlet issued a correction, but she never received an apology. After that, Ms. Torres couldn't find full-time work for a year until she was offered a job in New Mexico. She refers to that time in her life as corporate medical nightmare. 
This is torturously worded. She was not awarded $40,000 in damages, as it were. The Daily Caller decided it was cheaper to give her $40,000 than to go to trial and settled the lawsuit without admitting wrongdoing. In a statement from the Daily Caller, they wrote, quote, The Daily Caller has settled a lawsuit brought by Leah Torres without admitting fault. The Daily Caller is pleased to have this matter resolved and regrets any confusion that its March 14, 2018 tweet regarding Mr. Dr. Torres may have caused. So, I don't know that that's a correction, and I don't, uh, I don't think that they uh, were awarding damages. They paid you to go away. It wasn't exactly $787 million, right? It's forty grand. Go, just shut up. Here, take the money. Get away from me. <clears throat> but this is the job of the Guardian. We have our protagonist, the doctor who was falsely accused of fraud and defamed by conservative media who issued a correction and paid for their sins. Lest they be accused of fraud themselves, the Guardian carefully words their lies to deceive the reader while being sure not to find themselves on the wrong side of a lawsuit. Only now that the story is about to conclude are we informed that, quote, Torres was not found to have committed any wrongdoing in the malpractice case mentioned and the issue was settled out of court. Okay? Settled out of court, mind you. And... Quote, the committee who reviewed the case did not endorse the board's allegations against Torres, although the report concluded that elements of her answers were, quote, suggestive of deceptive answers and a lack of ethical integrity expected of practicing physicians in Alabama. As a result, she was instructed to take an ethics course and charge $4,000 in administrative fees to the board. The Guardian then repeats the lie, which was exposed by live action. When the case was removed from the National Data Bank that holds information on medical malpractice against doctors, the following explanation was soberly put. The action was reversed because the original action should never have been taken. Well, as a matter of fact, this is not the conclusion when a matter is settled out of court and you have to pay a $4,000 fine and you are compelled to take a medical ethics course. That's not what happens. Um, you did not have the case overturned or dismissed or said that it shouldn't have been brought. You were actually held liable for lying on your medical application is, is what actually factually happened. And the Guardian knows this all too well, having framed the Daily Caller's out-of-court settlement as an admission of guilt. This story was published in March of 2023. The live-action article exposing the lie was published in September of 2021. And the Guardian makes no mention of the board's statement that Torres is continuing to deceive the public. Because in closing, we are reminded that this is not about Miss Torres at all. She was just the best they could do when seeking a sympathetic victim in assailing their real target. Quoting from the Guardian. Fifteen months later on 24 June 2022, Alabama's Human Life Protection Act was finally able to come into effect after Roe v. Wade was overturned. Now a busy day at the clinic might mean seeing seven patients, though the clinic previously saw hundreds of patients every week. Marty, the operations director, believes that Torres's license suspension was just another way to prevent abortions from taking place in Alabama because before the overturning of Roe put uh, most abortions fully on hold for the foreseeable future. But Torres's predicament might become an increasingly common reality for doctors who continue to provide abortions in conservative states where people will continue to need abortion care in the circumstances they are allowed to, like when they spontaneously miscarry or go to the ER with life-threatening complications. Quote, this is what bullying looks like. This is the mob, the far right, the theocratic Christian nationalist mob, says Marty. She pauses. This is what anti-abortion states do, and Alabama hates abortion. This is a tactic that is going to be used on other abortion providers in hospitals in states that still have care. Everything that happens on abortion happens in Alabama first, she says. 
In Marty's view, the state was always looking for a way to be able to shut down the clinic, knowing that it was the most productive one in the state. Can you imagine describing it as productive, how sick that is? They figure out the one pressure point that has the most power over an entire state. Their entire mission is how to hold the most power with the least amount of people, she says. They may have finally found that pressure point. Asked how long the clinic can hold on financially before it has to close, Torres estimates until maybe June. And so after Alabama has banned abortion completely, Ms. Torres is still performing abortions in Alabama, maybe seven or more a week. She plans to continue doing so for as long as she can receive a paycheck. If that means she has to wonder if the car in front of her house is a cautious motorist or police coming to arrest her for her crimes, then this, after all, is the life she chose. She has been raised on a steady diet of liberal nonsense from her father's supposed racist bullying to her mother's alleged sexual harassment. Ms. Torres joined the fight by slaughtering the unborn, and she does all this in service to the one true faith of leftism. The Guardian, givers of the word, profess the faith and spare their readers the pain of doubt. Never once to blaspheme, they give their saint all due praise and call for the evildoers to be punished, be though they may, acting with state sanction. I read this story with great amusement, and I think it instructive in many ways. When Ms. Torres is talking about mutilating children before they have a chance to scream and being a uterus ripper-outer, she is acting incautiously. She is expending her energy. She is using her power, not building it. When the Guardian looks for a sympathetic victim, one does not exist. Ms. Torres is the best that they can do. So they torture the facts until they confess. They bury the bodies rather than praising her high score, as some of the more shocking elements of the right have done in the past. And one might say that this is altogether less fun than irritating one's political opponents online, but is it surely so? One doubts many but the faithful read this piece and their opinions of Ms. Torres change, but anyone introduced to her in the subject matter would have little choice but to assume they were reading about an oppressed victim in a wicked state hell-bent on her destruction. Oh, what power we could wield if our narratives could be so portrayed. Imagine if every newspaper in the land told the true story of your humble correspondent and his legal travails. Better yet, what if they glossed over my many real flaws and errors in judgment? What if I was trained from birth to fight evil like Miss Torres and my carceral journeys were just the latest steps in a lifelong struggle for justice? We might hope that such a day may come, and I'll appreciate your help in bringing it about. 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. Let's go check on this. Nobody is on hold. But if you would like to, you can go ahead and get on hold. And I'm going to go on to another story. Now, what is this? That is completely preposterous. Hang on a second. Let me refresh this page. Yes, okay. I was like, I'm, I'm going over here, and I'm like, there's no way I'm such a loser that there's nobody chatting. And, of course, once I refreshed the page, there, there was people chatting. So, hello, chatters. Good to, uh, good to see all of you. Hey, wait a second. Is, is Rumble not working? You've got to be kidding me. I didn't... You've got to be kidding me. What happened to Rumble? Oh, I know exactly what happened. <laughs> I know exactly what happened. And I am really upset about this. So, let me go fix what I did wrong now that I've gone through my opening monologue and we're 40 minutes into the show. I can't believe I did this. Okay. 
Okay. Sorry about that, Rumble. Now, I know exactly what happened. Apply the configuration. Now, I missed a semicolon in my <laughs> in my uh, web server configuration, and that created a big problem. So, I am very, very sorry to, sorry to uh, the people on Rumble and the people who attempted to watch Rumble on Entropy. That was a very, very silly mistake on the part of your Humble Correspondent. Now, wait a second. Why is that still not working? Come on, come on, come on, give me this thing. Oh, man, come on. What did I do here? I'm very, very sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Duh, of course. That's what I did wrong. That's what I did wrong. There we go. Okay, now... As I was saying, I know exactly what went wrong, and now I've definitely fixed it this time, because I'm really smart. And any second now, this thing's going to inform me that I've been successful, at which point I will... I probably don't even have to restart it. It's probably just going to reconnect, and then that is going to start working. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen. I know that... Uh, the last thing that you want to do is listen to me troubleshoot things. Now, let's see here. Come on. Okay, yes, we're back. All right, very good. That's very, very good news. Okay. And we're here. I'm very sorry. And boom. Okay. That's working. Yada, 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 yada. No, I don't want to go VIP. Thank you, Vaughn. Okay. Very good. And come on, Rumble. Show it, show it, show it, show it. I'm very sorry. And that's going to be coming on in a second now, right? Aren't you? What I don't like about Rumble is that they have me upload this placeholder video. And when the stream starts, it has to finish playing the stupid placeholder video before the video actually starts. Which means that I sit here for, you know, a minute and a half waiting for the thing to tell me if it's working or not. And that is, as you might have gathered, rather infuriating. Otherwise, I would have noticed this at the very beginning of the show, and I wouldn't be 40 minutes into it and done with my opening monologue when the thing started working. Hello, Rumble. Sorry about that. Uh, I am uh, I'm very sorry for that... Uh, technical malfunction. One of these days, I'm going to get it right from the start. So 217-688-1433, if you would like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to, as you've heard me say before. Let's go over to this other story, which I thought was very interesting. So for those of you who um, were not privileged to be listening to the beginning of the show on account of my technical error, I am very sorry. Welcome to uh, this 10th episode of the first stage of Surreal Politiques. I just finished discussing a story in The Guardian, which uh, really dishonestly portrayed this abortionist um, as this hero who was actually a fraudster who uh, did a lot of really nasty things and, and drew a lot of um, attention to herself by being intentionally offensive and then had the nerve to whine 
um, that she was being targeted by the anti-abortion movement because there are a bunch of monsters, of course. And that's what you need to know if you read The Guardian is that, you know, nobody who has a problem with abortion has any decent motives. They're evil. And so the point of the story, as you know, I sort of suggested in the in the show description today, is that the uh, you know this is how they construct their narratives. And oh, wouldn't it be nice that you know we could construct narratives in this way? Because we don't get that luxury, of course. We are not um, we're not people who are trying to protect a race of people, right? We we are not people who are trying to do a decent thing. We're not trying to maintain the order of civilization. We're not trying to stop the crime and, and, and mayhem that goes on in the inner cities, of course. We are, so far as the media and the general public is concerned, are violent monsters. And it would be really nice if we could, you know, if we could do something to change that, I think. And I think that this really ridiculous piece in The Guardian was, um, you know, probably not something that we would aspire to be that dishonest, but it was uh, it was a skilled lesson in in the craft in any case. And so I'll encourage you, when, once we're done here, to, I'll upload the whole video to Rumble instead of leaving you with the stream that begins after the opening monologue. I had a technical problem. But I'm moving on in any case to this other story. This is about T Taylor Lorenz, and, and you might have heard of her if you watch Tucker Carlson or you pay attention to left-wing media or anything that's going on today. Um, she worked for the, uh, for the Washington Post. I think she still works there, actually. And what she does is she doxes people. She's a villain. She just runs around ruining people's lives, okay? And it turns out that she had, quote, privileged access to Twitter before Elon Musk took over. And this was... Uh, Sort of an interesting story over at Headline USA, which was linked from Revolver News. We've talked about Revolver News a little bit and their impact on the discussion. I really like this news site. Uh, Dmitry Henry Alexandrov, Headline USA, writes, An independent journalist, Paul Thacker, revealed on Thursday in the latest round of Twitter files that a journalist and a banning queen, Taylor Lorenz, had privileged access to the higher-ups at the social media company before Elon Musk bought Twitter. Thacker reported that Lorenz communicated with those who controlled Twitter's back end, using her connections as a way to ban certain accounts and support others she worked with in her reporting. The journalist reminded everyone at the beginning that after Elon Musk bought the company and took over as CEO, Lorenz was, quote, apoplectic and that she warned that Musk was, quote, opening the gates of hell by allowing free speech on the platform. As he explained months prior, Lorenz was going after numerous accounts, including those that were not as popular as her own. One of those accounts, Fear the Floof, was banned from the platform and then mysteriously deactivated, despite no ban evasion, abuse, harassment towards Taylor Lorenz, platform manipulation, or sharing of personal information. It remains suspended to this day because the person behind the account dared to reveal that Lorenz comes from a family of millionaires. Oh, well. Isn't that a dangerous crime? Then Thacker pointed out that Lorenz, quote, seems to work in concert with her sources, saying that after she docked, doxed libs of TikTok, Alejandra, Alejandra uh, Caraballo sent a letter to Twitter asking to remove the popular conservative account from the platform. Lorenz quoted Carabello in her article not long after that. The privileged access to Twitter didn't stop there for Lorenz. She was also able to avoid any criticism on the platform. After Tucker Carlson mocked her on her on then his show, Twitter put out a notice telling uh, the Get team. Uh, I don't know what Get is. I, I think of the Twitter trust and safety team. They don't explain this um, G E T acronym, but whatever. 
uh, asking them to, quote, keep an eye on things. Oh, well. Can we please monitor the conversation around at Taylor Lorenz, the request said. The, she was specifically targeted by Tucker Carlson, and I think she's going to be in the center of an abuse campaign on the platform. She's had tremendous trouble with abuse on here before, and we need to be careful with her. Thacker said that there was no evidence that the platform provided similar levels of support to other journalists. And so, you know, this is how the narratives are constructed, of course, right? They want you to believe something, and so they organize the information environment. They say, hey, here's the newspaper, and the newspaper is going to tell you this story about this terrible victimization campaign against Leah Torres, who, you know, yeah, sure, she, you know, lied on her medical application, whatever. You know, maybe she had to pay $4,000 in fines and, you know, but, you know, she had to take an ethics class. It's, you know, whatever. We'll just move on from there. Why would you need to ask any questions about it? You know, we have informed you that it's malicious to go after an abortion doctor, and that's what's really important. And if you're a Guardian reader and you're not skeptical of the Guardian, then that's what you take away from the piece. And if you're on Twitter and you think that, like, hey, Twitter's, you know, an open, honest platform where everybody's just talking about what's happening, well, you know, you know, you know that, you know, Libs of TikTok is run by an evil villain who hates gay people, right? And so, you know, whatever happens to her is fine. And, of course, nobody's criticizing Taylor Lorenz because why would they? Taylor Lorenz is great. I mean, there's that weirdo Tucker Carlson who, like, has that TV show, but he's going to get fired soon anyway. And, you know, Taylor Lorenz is just telling us who the wicked people are. And nobody's criticizing her for that because she's great. And that's what happens when you get to uh, control the information environment. But that's not really the case anymore, is it? Like, if you're on Twitter, if you're not on Twitter, you should just like go make a Twitter account, you know? Like, if you're not notorious, they're terribly unlikely to, you know, track you down if you make a new account, if you're not, you know, running around, you know, I don't know, throwing Romans or whatever. Um, everybody knows who I am. I have Twitter blue. I have the check mark. I, like, paid for it. They have my credit card number and my cell phone number and everything. They know exactly who I am. Like, my first post was, hey, you know, uh, um, I, I'm, I've been waiting for you to approve my, you know, request to come back and you're not answering me. And so here I am, uh, I'll behave, you know, and I, and I basically have, uh, you know, when leftists come and, you know, pop off with me, I just block them. I'm like, go away. You know, I'll just, you know, call you something silly. That's not a racial epithet and we'll move on, you know? And so if you go on Twitter in any case, what you're going to see is that it's like a completely different thing. Like, I, I didn't even know how bad it got directly. You know, when I got when I got kicked off in 2017, I didn't like create a new account. I didn't go back on, you know. And uh, and I have heard, though, about like you can't, you know, misgender and, you know, all this stuff. And you say you, people got banned from saying men can't be women and things like this, you know. So it obviously got a lot worse in my absence, like everything else does. When I'm not around, everything goes to hell, you might have gathered. And so um, when I go on there now, I mean, you know, there's a there's an account on there that's great called Males in Disguise. You know? And he just posts videos of these people on TikTok talking about their, you know, gender adventures or whatever. And, you know, they're unedited, almost like the lives of TikTok thing. Just, to, to, you know, videos of transgender people talking madness. And you see it, you're like, yeah, well, you know. That's a pretty serious problem, I'd say. And, and like, my, my video, my feed is constantly populated with, like, videos of, um, 
I don't know, what we'll call on surreal politics, we'll call this inner city crime, and you'll, you'll get the idea of what I'm talking about. There's a great deal of inner city crime being discussed on Twitter, and videos of it appear in my newsfeed, and I retweet these things, and they, they tend to frame certain groups in a very, very negative light. And, you know, you don't you wouldn't want to go out and, you know, use epithets to describe these people or whatever. That would be hate speech. But what you see is the narrative is changing. It's completely being altered. There's no more the, the information environment. It's not without manipulation, clearly. I mean, you know, if Elon Musk were to allow, you know, Nazi propaganda on the platform, some Mossad agent would blow his brains out, and that would be the last you'd ever hear of him. He likes his life, and there's limits to how much danger he's willing to incur, obviously. But the the, the whole frame of reference is completely changing if you're on that platform. And that's a very good thing indeed, I would say. You know, I don't know, say, what the limits of Rumble are. I haven't attempted to test them, and I, I don't have any intention of doing so. But I'm reasonably confident that Surreal Politiques, even if I hadn't been banned from YouTube, I, I'm reasonably confident this this program wouldn't last very long on YouTube. Um, and I think that it will last on Rumble, as long as I, you know, stay within certain lines. And so this is the beginning of what I said at the end of that abortionist article, which is, the frame of reference is changing, and that's a big white pill indeed, I would say. And I, uh, I'm i made very hopeful by that, and I hope that you are too. 217-688-1433, if you would like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to, so please do give us a call. Caller, you are on Surreal Politics. What can I do for you, sir? Caller? Caller? Do you not hear me, Caller? So, caller, I know that um, I can hear your phone. I know that can you're you not. Me? Yeah, now I hear you. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you, pal. Are you listening to me on the radio or are you listening to me on your phone? Running out of time, pal. So, uh, let's. Uh, we are delayed. Well, I don't think that you're that delayed. You're listening to me on the radio, buddy. You're not listening. Uh, hello? Yeah, you got to listen to me on the phone, uh, not on the radio. I can't hear you on the phone. I can only hear you on the radio. So. All right, hang on a second. Uh, I know. Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on a second. I know what to do. I can't believe that this is doing this to me again. So I am going to fix this immediately because I can't believe, <laughs> you know, hey, Microsoft Windows, can you guys maybe every once in a while... Like, just try to, you know, like, take into consideration the possibility that, yeah, well, you, what are you doing? Don't automatically adjust my microphone. Don't put on noise cancellation. Just don't do anything. Like, this is ridiculous. Can you not hear me, sir? Is that really the case? Hello, Chris. Yeah, can you hear me? You can't uh, hear me. I can't hear you on, the, on here on the phone. I, this is ridiculous. So I'm looking at my voice being measured by this damn thing. And why would you have that thing installed? Um, you hear me now? How about now? No? Okay. Well, sorry, sir. I don't know what to tell you. So that's not going to work. Anyway. So, the hell with the phones. How about that? I just hung up on the phone system, and I'm going to save myself a couple of bucks, and we're just going to not do it. So, I'm going to go through one more story, and then we're going to call it a day, because I have Rumble crap out on me. I have my web server crap out on me. I have Skype crap out on me. I, you know, what, what the hell is going on here? 
So these are the things that uh, your humble correspondent puts up with in the course of uh, in the course of trying to make a media professional out of himself. 217-688-1433 is the number you cannot now call because I have hung up on the phone system. And I will go through one more story. And then we're just going to wrap it up because I'm having too many technological problems. Uh, students stay home in droves on a day when Ontario schools fly pride flags. This is over at LifeSiteNews.com. Many of the students who were absent across the Thames Valley School Board region came from Muslim families. And Jack Fonseca of Campaign Life Coalition urged others to follow the Muslims' example on future Pride Days. Now, you might know, it's we're ending, uh, we're ending May, and next month, June, is Pride Month, okay? And so in Pride Month, you take all month to celebrate homosexuals, you see. But, you know, it's, it's May, of course. And, like, we, the, in Canada, they're so enthusiastic about Pride Month that they've just got to get an early start on it. So they're already raising up the homosexual flag and, and demonstrating their, uh, their absolute devotion to the end of our species— uh, by promoting the end of reproductive sex, because the purpose of um, sex is to stimulate the genitals. It has nothing to do with reproduction. If reproduction ensues, someone like Leah Torres cures you of your pregnancy with a, a medical procedure known as abortion. But they would far prefer that you not contract this dreaded disease, and so they encourage you to be a homosexual instead. And the way that they do this, because, of course, if you had, like, gone through your life, you know, if you grew up in, like, a healthy family, and then you, um, you went through puberty, and then you met a girl, or if you are a girl, you met a boy, and then you had sex, and you experienced orgasm, and you realized, like, how wonderful life can be. Well, you would not entertain this in the slight. You'd be like, what are you, crazy? I'm not, what? I, I put my mouth where? Are you out of your mind? No, absolutely not. You know, you'd be like, you people are weird, you know. And so what they do is they're like, hello, kindergartner. I'd like to tell you about all of the joys of uh, genital stimulation with, you know, members of the same sex, preferably older ones. Maybe me, you know, maybe we could go talk about it over there, you know, behind the, behind the bookshelf or whatever. It's kind of the idea. And so they push it on the kids because that's the whole point of the endeavor, right? I mean, that's how homosexuals reproduce is what some people say. I don't know if it's entirely true, but it seems to have some, some merit to the claim. Hundreds of students stayed home on May 17th as Ontario schools flew the rainbow pride flag. Over 400 students, including about a third of the student body at Eagle Heights Elementary School in London, Ontario, were absent as schools raised pride flags to mark the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, and Transphobia, as reported by the London Free Press. Many of the students were from Muslim families. Okay, so I didn't even know about this one. So we have, there's another one now. So there's the Transgender Day of Visibility, right? So there's, there's Pride Month, which is the whole month, okay? There's a whole month called Pride Month, okay? And then there's the Transgender Day of Visibility. What's the other Transgender Day? There's another one that's like, Transgender Remembrance Day, right? That's when you remember all the black male prostitutes who wear wigs, okay? That they go out, you know, you might know about this. I used to run a website that talked about this a lot. There's another one up there now. I think uh, you can go blacksversusrainbows.com, blacksvsrainbows, it is, .com. And, and the, the phenomenon is a familiar one. That They blame this on white supremacy, but what happens is 
there are um, black transgender prostitutes who go out and get shot in the face after they turn tricks because guys don't want anybody to know what they did, right? Um, and so for, because of that phenomenon, they have a thing called Transgender Remembrance Day when all of the, all of the prostitutes who have been murdered are remembered, but they don't remember the perps because that would, that would be racist, okay? And so they have the, uh, the Prostitute Day, they have Transgender Day of Visibility Day because, you know, them screaming about it all day long is not enough. And then they have um, the, um, the uh, uh, Pride Month. And now they also have International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, and Transphobia. And in Canada, they celebrate this day by um, raising a flag over the conquered lands that they've taken over, I guess. And so many of the students, they were from Muslim families, and they were like, what are you talking about? We just took this place over. Like, we just conquered this country, and now you're putting up the, like, the gay thing, and like, we're not about that, okay? The whole reason that we took this over was like impose Sharia law on you, and now you're telling us that you're going to turn our kids into homosexuals? Like, you know, I'm not saying that we're going to cut your heads off or whatever, but, you know, we'll, 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 definitely, we'll definitely cut your heads off. In response to the absences, Craig Smith, president of the Thames Valley District of the Elementary School Teachers Federation of Ontario, encouraged the board to engage in courageous conversations with the Muslim community. Well, I think that that might turn out poorly for you, sir. At the end of the day, there is clearly a big issue that needs to be addressed, Smith said. Tammy Murray, president of the Umbrella Group, Oxford County Pride, said she was left speechless by the idea of parents keeping their children home to avoid the LGBT celebration. I guess it's the parents' choice, but it's very unfortunate, she lamented. Oh, well, what if a bunch of Christian parents said, do, do they get to make a choice, too? Because I think that you might treat it differently if it wasn't a bunch of Muslim families. In a time when the, uh, where the same group, Muslims, has been quite marginalized, you would think that minorities and marginalized groups would unite and support each other, she added. Well, that's not actually the way it works, matter of fact. <laughs> that's not the way it works at all. That's why your left-wing coalitions are going to fracture and turn into a civil war. Um, not very long after uh, you've conquered us, should you be fortunate enough to do that, and I, and I have my doubts that you will. One teacher from Thames Valley, the region's largest school board, was missing almost half her class on Wednesday and said teachers are tired of fighting against discrimination. Thames Valley provided little information as to why the absences took place. Andrew Canham, the board's Superintendent of Student Achievement promised, quote, we will work with individual schools and communities who may have experienced higher than usual absenteeism rates um, on May 17th or any day during the school year to encourage all students to attend school when they are able. Wow. Hey, kids, you know, uh, I know that you cut school, but we would like to encourage you to attend in the future because that's how we deal with problems now. We just say, hey, we would like to encourage you to obey the rules from now on. Could you do that for me, please, Mr. Um, Islamist? No? All right. Well, you know, could you just, you know, could you clean up after you cut the child's head off? Okay, thank you. According to an anonymous source within the school system, other elementary schools reported low attendance rates that day, including Ashley Oaks, Sir George Etienne Cartier, Westnount, and Sir Isaac Brock Elementary Schools. At Arthur Ford Public Schools, 375 students were absent and 300 students were missing from the Wilford Jury Public School. Jack Fonseca of the Campaign Life Coalition was encouraged by what took place, telling LifeSite News, quote, Thank God for these Muslim families who keep their children home on a so-called International Day Against Transphobia and Homophobia, another invention of the gay lobby which is used for indoctrination. Parents said a big fat no to teachers brainwashing their children with homosexual and transgender ideology, he continued. 
the risk of being called homophobic by mainstream media was obviously less important to these loving moms and dads than, than the need to protect their children's immortal souls from being led to accept evil as good and good as evil. I would guess another factor for the mass absence was the fear of kids being groomed at these events to question their gender, he suggested. Because of the rapidly spreading social contagion of children identifying as transgendered and demanding to be put on puberty blockers, this is a realistic fear on the minds of a growing number of parents, Fonseca explained. It's also well-founded because that is indeed happening both in schools and on social media. This is not the first time that students at Eagle Heights Elementary have missed school on days when the pride flag was flown. In February, in celebration of Rainbow Day, you got another one, you got Rainbow Day in February? Like... It was just a monthly homosexual celebration. So it'd be like, well, we have Pride Month, we have Transgender Day of Visibility, we have Prostitute Memorial Day, and then we have the Day Against Transphobia, and then we have Rainbow Day, and well, today is the day that you sit on my lap, and you know, whatever it is. You know, they just make these things up as they go along. They're like, hey, why are you putting the rainbow flag up? He's like, because it's Rainbow Day. Don't you know? Are you a homophobe or something? You're like, oh, well, of course. I, I, We were just going out to buy the candles for the cake or whatever. They just go along with it because they're scared, obviously. <laughs> Parents have begun to speak out against LGBT propaganda being pushed on their children at school, pro-LGBT school trustee Wendy Ashby recently resigned after over 3,000 parents petitioned for her resignation. Similarly, last month, a group of young Canadians protested a school-sponsored drag event in front of York Mills Collegiate Institute in Toronto. Yeah. What was the, what was the day of celebration that caused you to bring in the drag show? They're like, today is a uh, uh, drag queen story hour day. Well, it wasn't that yesterday. Every day is dry clean story hour day. Shut up, homophobe, before I sue you. Keep your children home that day, he added. Suggest it to other parents at your school. Do the same. We can emulate the mass absence experienced at Eagle Heights in every school across the nation, which flies this symbol of sin in the LGBT political power. Whether yours is a public or Catholic school that plans to fly the flag, let them hear your protest by the silence of your children's absence. Fonseca continued adding that some schools plan to raise the pride flag on June 1 to avoid the, quote, embarrassment of significant student absences on June 1st. Wait, wait. Oh, they, they're talking about raising the flag before June 1st to avoid them sitting out day one of Pride Month. I get it now. Okay. That's pretty clever. They're like, you know what we're going to do, you bunch of bigots? We'll just keep the flag up all the time. Okay, and so if you want to get educated, you're gonna you're gonna show up and you're gonna walk through a little uh, a little gauntlet of homosexual propaganda. And if you don't want to get educated, they're gonna come prosecute you for not educating your children. Okay, so now that you've come here, okay, we went and prosecuted our citizens to make y'all feel comfortable. All right, now you're gonna do what we say because we're in charge. You understand? Because what we're really concerned about, what we're really concerned about, is not your well-being. We're concerned about the downfall of mankind. We're very heavily invested in it. And to the extent that you immigrants can be useful in carrying out that goal, we'll use you to do it. And as soon as you try to stop us, oh boy. <laughs> Don't let us set the white supremacists on you, huh? <laughs> we might have to, we, there might be a whole bunch of fake hate crimes in your neighborhood, you know? Some of you might actually get hurt, you know? I'm saying that this is what the this is what the left does. I'm not suggesting that anybody should do anything like this. I'm saying that it would be criminal and mean to do it. It's bad. This is what the Democrats do because they are the real racists. 
Parents must find out which day their public or Catholic school is going to raise the LGBT flag, he urged. Demand an answer from your principal or vice principal. Ask directly whether they're going to use it on June 1st or an earlier date. Don't take no for an answer. Then spread the word to other families in your school and make it not happen, Fonseca said. It's time to push back in large numbers. Well, I think, you know, I think that what's going to eventually happen, guy, is like, you know, it seems to me what they're going to do is they're just going to leave the damn thing up. And I think that you're going to have a, you're going to have kind of a a situation on your hands, I'd say. They're just going to be like, okay, look, Pride Month is June 1st. And so on May, you know, 25th or whatever, we'll put up the Pride flag. And if you want to like stay home for the day, that's fine. But eventually we're going to send the truancy cops to your house. And eventually we're going to say, hey. The only good thing for your child is to learn that he's transgender, okay? We have to teach your child to hate his body so that he can stop reproducing the wickedness that is your lineage, okay? That's the whole point of the exercise, of course. And so unless we can teach him that, you're, you're sinning against the state. We're going to have to take your children away from you, at which point we'll put them in a, in a, in a blocked building where... In the locked building, they'll be they'll be uh, deprived of contact with the opposite sex, and they'll be educated about homosexuality. And well, you know, we'll just let nature take its course. Probably, it's probably what they're going to do. And so, uh, you know, go ahead, skip school. Uh, you know, I'm not telling you not to. I'm not telling you you should go submit to this crap. I just don't think that. Uh, I have my doubts that that's actually going to solve the problem. I guess is the moral of the story. But uh, we're going to keep on trying to find it, whatever it is. Surrealpolitics.com slash join is one way for you to do that. You can become a member. You can give me $10 a month. Or you can give me less, as a matter of fact. You could give me $6.67 a month because I'm going to let you... I usually just do this promo code on the other show. But because I really like you guys and because you're swell people and because I put you through all this trouble with the technical problems earlier, I'll tell you, there's a code that you can use. Agenda 33. And if you sign up with the code Agenda33, then you'll get your first three months at 33% off. And there's a reason for that, you might gather. Um, and, of course, one of the benefits of doing that would be that you get, like, these are really, really deep discounts in the shop. At surrealpolitics.com shop, you might know we sell things. We sell a whole bunch of stuff. And a lot of it is, is actually very, very deeply discounted for members. So, for example, we sell T-shirts for $25. But if you're a member, you get them for $15. Okay, so since your membership is $6.67 a month with the code Agenda 33, if you become a member and then after your membership is is purchased, then you go back to the shop, you'll see that the price is $15. So a membership and a t-shirt costs less than a t-shirt. And so, yeah, go get a membership and a t-shirt. Like, what are you waiting for? It's like a no-brainer, of course, obviously. I mean, it's just, it's just math. How, are you disputing math? Are you some kind of, you know, mathophobe or something? You wouldn't want to, you don't want to do that. You wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to incur that kind of, you know, sin on, stain on your reputation that you're against math. And so, obviously, you're going to go pay me at uh, surrealpolitics.com slash join. That's surrealpolitics with a K, by the way. It's like realpolitik, but surreal. You know that. And uh, you go do that, and then you'll uh, you'll become a member. And then uh, while you're over there, maybe you go to surrealpolitics.com slash getpm, and you can get a, an encrypted email account from ProtonMail. And then it would be difficult for these people to spy on you when you're talking about cutting out of class. You can even get a VPN, surrealpolitics.com slash VPN, and you get like a virtual private network from any one of a, a number of different providers. I get paid every time you sign up for one. It doesn't even matter to me which one you do. Um, because I'll get paid no matter what. And that would be great for you, especially. But, you know, I get a buck, and I I like dollars. And so you should do all of those things, and you should definitely be back here next Monday, because we do this every Monday at 9.30. 
And then I do other stuff like Wednesdays. If you are a member, then Wednesday we do it again at 9.30 on Wednesday, but it's only for members. And then we don't have this thing with like the Skype and the, the, the thing. Like you're in the video chat with me. It's a members-only video chat. We do it every Wednesday for our members. And then the, the archives are posted uh, for you to join, uh, for you to listen to if you miss it or whatever. But we would like you to join us for the live chat because that's a lot of fun. And, uh, and then, you know, on Fridays, I do something different that we don't really talk about here, but you can find out more about that if you look around for uh, the name of the host, okay? And so do all of those things because they're really great. They're really wonderful. This is how you're going to save your country, by doing exactly what I tell you to do. And we will be back Monday, if not sooner. Thank you very much for tuning in to Surreal Politics. Have yourselves a wonderful evening and good night.